The funny thing is that designers actually have a feeling that there is enough of business people out there. So the way we will try to balance this out, these two perspectives is like, there's enough of people who only think about how to make money. I'm just gonna care about how I can create value. Then the balance is created by me just focusing on value creation and I'm gonna ship over my work. I'm just gonna throw my stuff on a business people's desk and they will take care of the business stuff. But that's not how it works because the viability perspective to the perspective of how this works from the business. So how design works from the business side can be solved after you have designed your solution. It needs to be baked into the very solution. Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the behavior-based UX research partner for enterprise leaders who need an independent perspective to align hearts and minds, and also the home of New Zealand's first and only world-class human-centered research and innovation lab. If that sounds interesting, you can find out more about what we do at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to keep on top of the latest thinking and important issues affecting the fields of UX research, product management, and design. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of a diverse range of world-class leaders in those fields. My guest today is Alan Falich. Alan is the founder and CEO of DMBA, a company he started in 2017 to help designers become business confident, which is part of DMBA's mission to show that companies can be run more thoughtfully and also be financially successful. DMBA seems to be making progress in that mission with a 97% completion rate and a 9 plus out of 10 student rating. That's been achieved from over 600 designers hailing from more than 60 countries and who work at companies like Apple, Frog, Google, Logitech and Amazon. Before founding DMBA, Alan was a business designer at IDEO in Munich, Germany, where he practiced human-centered design while working on digital experiences, services, physical products, and new ventures for Fortune 500 companies. Alan is a generous contributor to the field, sharing his insights freely through DMBA's podcast and other online resources. He has also been a guest on the Disco, Design MBA, and Bonanza podcasts, as well as contributing his thoughts to UX Collective on Medium. And now he's here with me for this conversation on Brave UX. Alan, hello and a very warm welcome to the show. Thanks, Brendan. I think you've done a very thorough research of uh, where I've been, <laughs> where I've been and which podcast I've been. Uh, so looking forward to this conversation. It seems like you've done your research. I've given away all my, all my tricks now, all my tricks. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Alan, one of the things that I discovered about you was that your home country is uh, that of Slovenia, as it would turn out, is a even slightly smaller country than my home country of New Zealand, which I thought was one of the smaller ones, is around 2 million people in Slovenia. What yeah. is Slovenia best known for? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, at this stage, I think it may be our superstar basketball player, Luka Doncic. He plays for Dallas Mavericks. He's been like a top NBA player for the last three, four years. I guess more people would know about him than about the country itself, <laughs> perhaps. That's one thing. Apart from that, I don't know. It's a beautiful little country in the middle of Europe that uh, it's kind of overlooked, but it has a little bit of everything. You know, it has a little bit of Alps, a little bit of the seacoast, a little bit of uh, Pannonian like fields. So it's it's a beautiful place. 
It certainly looked like one. I did have a little cheeky Google and saw some of the images. It's uh, yeah, it d- does look like one of those places that you could easily get lost in. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's not that big to get lost in, but it's it's nice to get lost in. It's one of those countries that I recently like pops up in a lot of these lists of like, oh, here are top ten countries you haven't uh, visited yet. Yeah. And you should. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's like this like second tier popular destinations in Europe because now everyone ha- a lot of people have been to Paris, Amsterdam, Berlin, and they're looking for new destinations. I can just attest to it. It's it is a really cool destination for tourists, but even more so for living. Just to give people some geographical context, it borders on its southern borders uh, Croatia, and then south of Croatia is Bosnia and Herzegovina. And yeah. I noticed on your LinkedIn profile that you also speak Bosnian. And so I, I wanted to ask you about that. I assume you've got Bosnian heritage. Yeah, correct. So my parents are Bosnian. They were born there. And then my father, when he was 18, he moved to Slovenia. So at the time it was still Yugoslavia. So Slovenia was together with Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia, and so on. It was uh, one country. And uh, they moved um that was probably, I don't even know like when exactly they moved, uh, but I was born here. But yeah, we visit every year. So it's like a six hour drive back to Bosnia and we have basically all of our family there. Yeah, you know, I was going to ask, do you make a return? And clearly you, you do, you go regularly. What is it like going to a country that you've obviously got quite close ties to, but that you weren't born in and mm-hmm. a country that has been through some what of a tumultuous yeah. period over the last 20 years. Is there a um, a certain feeling that you get when you cross back into your, I suppose it is your father and your mother's homeland? No, definitely. I mean, the funny thing is when I was, I don't know, 10, between 10 and 15, and we would frequently go back two times, three times a year. When I went to Bosnia, they would refer to me as Slovenian. When I was in Slovenia, my schoolmates here would refer to me to as Bosnian. So, you know, it's like that identity, like who am I, what am I? But yeah, I mean, Bosnia was unfortunately really struck by the war and um, there's still a big difference. I mean, politically, it's not in the best shape. Economy is not in the best shape. So when you go there, you, you do see a completely different, like basically society and economy and how this works. So it just gives you a perspective on how People live differently and it's basically just 300 kilometer, 400 kilometer path, but it's just a huge difference. So I think it definitely enabled me to just have empathy for different situations and to be able to get myself into different shoes, which I think (laughs) coming to design also definitely helps me a lot. You mentioned there, it was almost like you were describing being caught between two worlds, your Bosnian heritage, but born in Slovenian and Slovenia, but they don't or those, some of those people at school didn't consider you to be Slovenian and then the same again when you go back to your parents' homeland. Where have you arrived with that in yourself? Like how have you decided to approach that situation? Like where have you, where have you reached so far? It's not a thing I really consciously were thinking about or trying to make a decision about. I think it's just one of those things that happens. I think I'm a combination of both. So... I consider myself a Slovenian. I think, you know, being born here, having most of my friends being Slovenian, I do consider myself Slovenian with Bosnian heritage. I have certain mindset and characteristics of a Bosnian, but yeah, so... What would those mindsets... Yeah, yeah, what would they be? 
So we sometimes say like, oh, you're such a Balkan person. <laughs> so this means that you just find your way through life, you know, being shrewd and sometimes not always following all the rules, trying to <laughs> not like go against the law, but just like sometimes certain things, certain rules, let's say, don't make sense. And you just find a different path. And I think that's important also for entrepreneurship <laughs> to just... <laughs> think for yourself so that's an example of one such thing maybe self-deprecating humor as well so what you notice one of the things you notice in Bosnia is just like so the mindset of people is just not as positive out you don't, they don't have such a positive outlook the life has taught them that things are not gonna turn for the better that's at least the feeling you get especially from coming from the outside in the way people deal with this is a lot of um, yeah humor and uh, i think i definitely inherited some of that oh good well i hope to tease some of that out on this uh, <laughs> podcast with you alan it's interesting you talk about the you know the willingness to to bend the rules and to sort of work around inconveniences when they don't make sense and that being something that's useful in entrepreneurship i yeah, i can definitely see that it's also interesting that you ended up in germany or you are so far right and what i assume is wouldn't say rigid, but seems to be very stereotypically <laughs> famous for its ability to stick to processes and to be very methodical. And I just wanted to, I suppose, understand like how your Balkanness, if you like, has uh, has fared you well or otherwise in that sort of very German, very in industrial, very process-driven economy, that way of working. It's a great fit. <laughs> it's a great fit because... Uh, I myself also love like some kind of structure and stuff so that you understand the constraints. But within those constraints, there is still some freedom of how you behave, freedom of interpreting. And as I said, I mean, one of the main questions I always have is like, why is certain rule a rule? Because you have people who just follow the rules blindly and you have people who like ask the why. And if you really uh, answer the why and ask this question, you sometimes see that, oh, this same rule can also be interpreted differently. The same rule can also be fulfilled differently, or I don't think this will make sense. And you just decide to go against it, which is also a decision. So yeah, I mean, also Germany as a country, I think it's, it's definitely known for, I wouldn't call it rigid, but it's just like, it has a good, good structure. But once you live in it, you also see that you have Balkan people everywhere. And I don't mean literally, but like people who, who you know, who just, think more freely also in Germany, let's put it this way. And there's a funny story, like where does Balkan start? If you ask Germans, it starts in Austria. If you ask Austrians, which is north of Slovenia, it starts in Slovenia. If you ask Slovenians, <laughs> it starts in Croatia. If you ask Croatians, it starts in Bosnia. And this is basically going from north down to south. And Bosnians don't say anymore going for that. They, they accept it. They accept it. They're Balkan. <laughs> let's talk about, I suppose, some interesting tension that I saw, at least in your educational background, sort of maybe a bit of uh, your Balkanness brushing up against uh, some of the structure that exists. And in this case, it was in Austria because uh, you went, you left Ljubljana uh, where you'd studied your undergrad, which is Slovenia's capital. And you went to study a master's degree in Vienna, which was in strategy, innovation 
and wait for it, people, management control. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And, this, <laughs> and the first half of that degree to me was like, oh, yeah, that's definitely, you know, I can, that sounds really exciting. That sounds very, like, design-minded. And that second part, management control, sounds a little bit scary, Cushy. frankly. Yeah, maybe a little yeah. bit Austrian, a little bit German. Uh, what is management control and how did those two parts of the master's interrelate? I mean, if I'm completely honest, I was so disinterested in the second part that I don't even remember. You know, it's just one <laughs> of those things that you go through. I was super interested in strategy and innovation, and I couldn't care less about like managing corporations and uh, controlling processes and so on. So, I mean, that's my answer. I don't, I don't really even like have a good answer to it because that's one thing that people don't realize is if you go and study business, there are two different paths. You can study business and you can study economics. Some schools, I mean, most schools, at least abroad, are called like business schools. And some are even called economics, like London School of Economics, but most are called business schools. But usually, as far as I know, you can study both of these paths. So one is business, is like, how do I do business? And economics is more like, how to understand understand economy of a country, how to understand the economy, how it works. I was definitely more interested in the business side. And then even in the, within the business side, you have these different paths. So you can go into strategy, you can go into entrepreneurship, you can go into finance, you can go into, well, finance is part of economics. There's so many different paths. So strategy was definitely something that I was interested since always into. So I more remember from that part of the program than the management control part. Yeah, and and this program, I understand, it took you to some pretty interesting places, or to one interesting place in particular, and that was to a role at IDEO. So after you finished, you went to work in Berlin there as a business designer. Yeah, I was in Munich actually. Oh right, but, in Munich. Uh, it's a funny story. So um, while I actually did my undergrad in Ljubljana, and there was a program entrepreneurship. And one of my uh, professors was, for half a year she taught, so her name is Anya Nabergoy, and for half a year she taught in Ljubljana, and for half a year she taught in Stanford. And um, obviously one of the things she brought to us in Ljubljana was design thinking. Uh, so in a business school we were taught design thinking class. It was interwoven into all classes, but obviously there was also one called design thinking. And um, I don't know, I just really hit it off with the professor. And when she heard that there was an opportunity for like business design internship at IDEO, she told me about it because if you go and study business, you like IDEO is not a company you hear about. It's not like a career path you would usually think about. So she told me about it. Then I checked her website. I checked the shopping cart video, which everyone has seen. And then from there, uh, I was like, oh, that sounds like an interesting place. I then decided to get in touch and they asked me for a business design portfolio. As a business school graduate or business school student, you don't know what business design is and you don't have a portfolio because no one has ever asked you to have a portfolio because you were a business school student. So you have a CV and uh, I quickly Googled what this thing is. I quickly put something together. I sent it over, it seemed to be good enough. So I got an internship and uh, I fell in love. Yeah. <laughs> You didn't fall in love for too long though, right? You were there for a couple of years and then it seems like you fell in love with another idea. And about this, uh, you've said while you're working at IDEO, you described this in your own words and I'll quote you now. Uh, you observed what was a, and here's the quote, a big disconnect between the design community and the business community. What was it that you saw or experienced while you are at 
IDEO that was symptomatic of that disconnect? Before I went to IDEO, I was just one of the 60 people in the room who was thinking about things from the business perspective. And then I transferred from a business school to a design agency, world-class design agency. And I would tend to be one or there would be two people who would think about the business things. Everyone else was just thinking about design. And initially I loved it. You know, I was just learning everything about design. It was the first time I heard things like synthesis, persona, I don't know what else. I, there's plenty of these like terminologies. But then I started to see the problems on projects where we would deal with, uh, with clients who obviously expected some kind of return on their investment in these projects. And um, a big part of the team would not be able to communicate with a client, explain the value of design, explain our concepts, or even, frankly, even sometimes think about the business side of the, the things on the project because you we would typically approach things from the user perspective obviously but the problem was then sometimes it stopped there you know it didn't translate into also how does this translate into a business model does it fit with a client strategy and so on so that was the disconnect that i kind of discovered or identified Mm. And this is a disconnect that you've framed before, and I'll quote you again now, as a systemic issue in the design community that we have to work on. So what is the system, I suppose, or the aspect of the system that you attribute the issue to? Where are we going <laughs> wrong? What aren't we joining correctly here? I think it's two big factors. One factor is uh, self-selection of designers. So most people who go into design go into it because yeah, they don't want to, I, I don't know, deal with math. They dislike big companies. They have their own thoughts about capitalism and so on. So like, you know, even like self-selection is like, oh, I don't like these things. I want to go into something more artistic. And this in itself, like seeing design as artistic is usually like a notion that you have as a student. But then once you get into working as a designer within companies, you see design is less about art and more about solving problems. It's a way of thinking, actually. So self-selection is one part. And the second part, more systemic part of the issue is also design schools. Where to start? So, I mean, the way design schools, I mean, they are taught by more traditional designers and they themselves also don't have business education. And even when they do, it's very limited. So when you go as a designer through a design school, you are not exposed to the business realities or realities that you can expect once you get into your role. And the way design schools try to solve that is by let's have a business course, you know? So you have a three-year program and one of those 20 courses, so one of those 20 classes that you take is going to be a business course. And then they think, oh, I checked the box here, which is by the way, exactly the same way that uh, business schools try to solve the design problem. So there is 19 courses about business and then there is one course course called design thinking and I know designers really dislike when business people say oh I have a design thinking certificate I know how to do design thinking well it's exactly the same thing with uh, designers in design schools learning about business so the problem is it's the curriculum is just not like tackling these issues at all frankly you know it's not really intertwining these two topics in the way it should I think still in the beginning of the career, you should more focus on the craft of the business of the design craft, but there's still some basics that you could and should be aware of going into these roles. 
sounds like you're saying that education is part of the problem, but clearly given what it is that you do, you seem to believe that education is also potentially the solution to this issue. Yeah, what is it that you have specifically chosen to do different at DMBA to address the gap that you see in effectiveness that the traditional design education model has been delivering? The thing that, I mean, we're basically solving the problem that design schools kind of create. The very fact that we exist means there is a problem that we're solving. So it's not even about the way we try to be different from the schools. We're just solving the problem that is there. But we are trying to be different in a way that we try to create a good educational experience. So that's our kind of spin to the whole thing, which is it's an online education and we are concerned and we try to design the thing in a way that it just works because there's a lot of online most of the online education space is just it's not a good experience it's basically just education content hidden behind a paywall it's not really education there is no interaction there is no no one giving you feedback talking to you um which is what all of these things are required for for education which is you you're like you growing basically so that's how we try to build our thing it's not even like counter positioning to design schools this is more like us counter positioning to all other online educations but our so our content is basically solving the problem of design schools and our format is solving the problem of online education i imagine that that doesn't that framing doesn't make you particularly popular at design schools i don't know i've i've worked a little bit with the london school of economics who is aware of this issue. And most of the schools are actually aware of like, hey, we do need more business education. We need to, we do want more business courses. Also because now students have started to demand it. Uh, like, hey, we do want to know about business models and so on. So it's changing. So I don't think it's, I don't have any feedback of uh, my unpopularity. <laughs> <laughs> Best not to listen to the critics anyway, isn't it, Alan? <laughs> what do they really know? Anyway, I was curious about the decision you made with DMBA that you couldn't just pay and participate, you have to apply. How does that application, which is, of course, it's very common in terms of other higher education institutes, you, you can't just, you know, put your credit card in and then start program. But how does this change the way that your students feel about their participation? And is there a sense of elitism or something else that intended behind this decision? The whole idea is not that we will be trying to be exclusive. It's more that we are trying to find the people who this is for. So what we mean by this is that the MBA is designed for designers, full stop, and only for designers. So if you're not a designer, we will not let you in. That's one thing. If you don't have enough time to commit to the program, even if you're a designer, we won't let you in. And if you apply and through your questions, we see that you don't know what you're applying for, we won't let you in. So these are all the things that we basically use as a filter to make sure that people who get in actually co-create a nice experience for everyone else who gets in. Because education, everyone who has gone to any school knows that a big part of your experience is everyone else who is in the program. So we do, that's why we have this whole application process to make sure that everyone else who is in there is also motivated because 
you also learn from each other. You don't just learn from the teacher, let's say. And one of the things that you do differently once people are in the program is you have quite an extreme level of accountability that seems to sit over their participation. And you've said, and I'll quote you again now, everyone's work is visible. Each week you need to do an assignment. And if that's private, it's a completely different culture than if it's public. What does that look like in reality? Is this something that spins people out? You know, like they have to actually do everything in a public forum? So basically the way the MBA works is like, we believe that you learn the most by doing, you know, like also when you're a little kid, the way you learn something is like this pan is hot. If the parent tells you that it's hot, you won't believe it until you try. So I think it's baked into us. The way we learn best is by actually not consuming content, but by producing content. So the way each week works is you receive certain content, you learn something about the business, and then you need to apply this to an assignment to a challenge. So we work with real world companies and they give us challenges. And then you as a student, you have a safe sandbox and you apply this knowledge. So basically not everything is public in a way that you can consume this knowledge whenever you want, the way you want it. And you can try and apply to this assignment and work on it uh, individually, uh, privately. But then once you're ready, then you share it with the cohort. This means that we have a channel in Slack where everyone shares their work. And this is the magic because once you start seeing those things come in, you see as a student like, oh, I haven't thought about this. You know, you checked Peter's work, you check Ashley's work and you see like, oh, that's a really cool way to do it. So it works as a nice way to learn, but it also works as accountability because like you see all of those assignments trickle in and you're like, oh, I don't want to be the one that's not doing it this way. And it's like a really powerful psychological lever that just makes you finish and do the work. And like, that's the whole point of education is that you actually test yourself, even when it's hard, that you actually go through this, let's call it struggle, and you come out of that with some new knowledge. And uh, being in a group, it's just a different dynamic and it just makes you go through this experience with just different energy, more accountability, and just more uh, learnings. Yeah, I'm thinking about my own education. And I seem to recall that we were graded on a curve. And that means that there's a scarcity of A's, if you like, to go around, which disincentivizes your will to share your work with others, which again is like what you're talking about here is almost counter the point of education. It's counter that kind of, if I go to a bit sort of Greek or Roman on it here, it's counter that kind of academy type focus where you're there learning together. Yeah. Do people need to be warmed up to this? Is this something that it takes like the first assignment to, for people to really connect with until they're kind of comfortable working in this way? So we do try to explain the culture up front. We do try to show how it works up front. Most of the people also, before they join the program, they talk to an alumni. Sometimes it's their friend, sometimes it's their colleague, sometimes it's just reaching out on LinkedIn to an alumni and talk to them. So most people get into it with the expectation that it's going to be this type of work, but it does take a week to just understand how the wheels spin. You know, like, okay, how does a weekly rhythm feel like? consuming the content, applying the knowledge, having a weekly call where we discuss things. So it does take some time. But we do, we have people from, as you said in the beginning, like people from all over the world, from all continents. And it just seems to be more natural to us human beings to be cooperative than to be in competition. 
Um, so we don't have any issues with that actually. So it's a very open culture, you know, everyone's sharing and um, it just plays on human nature, I think. So thinking about culture and now thinking about strategy, I've heard you describe your strategy at DMBA and I'll quote you again now as our caring is our strategy. And that sounds that sounds very nice, right? That that sounds particularly appealing to uh, people that are interested in furthering their education, and you know, loosely generalizing here to designers as well, right? But what does it actually mean, and how does it show up? What does it look like? So the way what this means is that you know how you, you if you go to university or school, you can just feel like you're a number. Nobody really cares if you're gonna finish the course, nobody cares if you show up. We try to be opposite, on the opposite spectrum of this, like, let's call it feature. So what we try to do is obviously going in to the program, you have a, an application call with a person who explains how things work. So that's the first step where you get a feeling like, okay, there is some interaction here. But what it means within the program is that, you know, if you, for example, would miss out on giving an assignment, we wouldn't ignore it. We would like reach out and ask you, hey, do you need any help? Or um, for example, we even do this like at the end of each week, an hour before there is a deadline for submitting an assignment, we have a reminder. A reminder for like, okay, these five people, you haven't finished your assignment yet. Do you need any help? And these are small little moments that do not happen in online education because a lot of people have a feeling of like, oh, if I don't do this thing, nobody will notice. No, in the DMBA, we will notice. And it's not just about noticing and making you finish this, but it's also about like, hey, did you get stuck? And if you do get stuck, then we try to help you get unstuck. Maybe with, it's with some help, some guidance. Sometimes it takes a call to help. So these little moments are the thing that make you like feel seen and be seen and have the feeling of care, you know, like those things. And that's what is essential for education and for growth. You do need to be seen and like have the feeling of I can trust these people and I can grow with them. And people aren't just doing this for fun, right? This is a significant investment of time and also energy and uh, money into this. We're not just doing it for, for a good time. People are seeking to achieve some sort of outcome. And the way that you've framed the outcome that the program delivers is that it's an outcome of helping them to become business confident so what does it mean right. or what does it look like? What does a business confident designer look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So we didn't want to say that the DMBA will, we were trying to find the right word because by taking a regular MBA, the goal of a regular MBA is to turn you into a business manager. So you come from different perspectives of life and you learn enough business that you can become a manager essentially and our promise is there's enough of business people out there by joining the mba you won't be turned into a business person you will stay designer but you will know more about business and you won't have all the business answers but you'll have much better questions and the way we try to package this into one word is business confidence basically so the way this translates into real work it means, as I said, like you having better questions because the problem with the business topic for designers is a lot of times it's like blind spots. You don't even know what you don't know. And then you have this meeting with a 
decision maker and then they show up with i mean they ask you about i don't know return investment or they use a weird word you've never heard about and you just like block you know like you you don't know how to respond to it so it's about having an answer you know having a discussion in that perspective and um, the way this then translates into concrete results for example is like for those of our alumni who joined who are freelancers so for the freelancers who join a the program, they frequently like said, hey, because I use business tools and projects, I can also reframe my projects in a way that I can charge more for those. Those who are in-house designers, they frequently report that they have more say in strategic topics because they can better present design topics in their work. And they can better also explain why they need more budget for the team for example because they can use simple spreadsheets to explain like hey if we invest in this and by the way i need two people for this but if if we invest in this then it's going to lead to i don't know increasing revenue or something like this for consultants for example they basically just report they can they have similar to in-house people so they use better language to explain the projects but it's not just about that but also like they can use different frameworks to do research like business research and uh, they can also design business models for innovation projects. And uh, for some of our alumni, they're also looking for to start their own companies. And for those, like they basically need to come up with a strategy, come up with a business model. So they do need to know these topics also pretty well so that they can basically create a successful venture. You spoke about blind spots just a little earlier on there. And I want to zoom out now and rewind time a little here. And it's back to a time in Berlin at a conference or a meetup called Berlin UX UI, where you gave a talk called Good Design is Good Business. Mm -hmm. And that talk was quite insightful in the way that it exposed a couple of blind spots for two different groups of people here who are put together and have to work together, one being business people and the other being designers. You put forward two perspectives in that talk on that saying, the saying, good design is good business. The first was the point of view of designers and the second was the point of view of business people. What are those two perspectives and how do they relate? So broadly speaking, I think you're referring to like business perspective, focusing on the viability perspective. So it's like, how much does something cost? How much should we charge for it? How do we extract value? So how do we, you know, make money? <laughs> And for the designers, it's like, how do we create value? How do we, what do people want? How can we give them what they want? And um, the funny thing is that designers actually have a feeling that like there is enough of business people out there. So the way we will try to balance this out, these two perspectives is like, there's enough of people who only think about how to make money. I'm just going to care about how I can create value. And then the balance is created by me just focusing on value creation and I'm going to ship over my work. I'm just going to throw my stuff on a business people's desk and they will take care of the business stuff. But that's not how it works because the viability perspective to the perspective of how this works from the business. So how design works from the business side can be solved after you have designed your solution. It needs to be baked into the very solution. And the story I use in the talk is um, from the Bauhaus uh, masters. So if we look at their beautiful furniture, it's not just desirable from the perspective that it looks good and that it's ergonomical and so on, but it's also very viable. 
if you look at the way it's designed, it uses very simple shapes. It's uh, squares, it's triangles, it's uh, circles. Uh, why? Because those are the easiest shapes to reproduce in a factory on scale. And that means you can produce these, this, this furniture at the low enough cost to be able to, and to sell it at the appropriate price for the middle class, which was the goal of the Bauhaus in that, uh, in that era, like to modernize design, basically. The same for the colors. You know, what are the three uh, basic colors of uh, Bauhaus? It's uh, blue, yellow, and red. Again, very easy to produce for factories. And uh, you can see that if those Bauhaus masters would only think about, let's create something beautiful, they wouldn't keep these things in mind, which were basically the reason these pieces of design became icons, because they were produced on scale and they could be produced in factories. And that meant that they were just, you know, viable and desirable at the same time. And something that I, I wasn't that familiar with the story until I listened to your talk, something that I thought was also really interesting was that there is a broader international competitive lens that sparks this whole story, isn't there? There was a competitive imperative for Germany to do this. What was yes. that imperative? How did it all come yeah. to be? Yeah, this is how, I mean, this is like a type of story I love, which is like, you see that nothing happens just because it happened. There's always a reason. And in this case, Bauhaus was born because German factories were trying to find a way to compete with, at that moment, basically the industrial champion, which was England. So they created the best products at the best prices and all the whole world wanted to have basically British arts and crafts products. And Bauhaus, sorry, and German factories were basically looking for what can we do? You know, it doesn't make sense to compete with English factories on the same parameter. We need to be different. And that's what the strategy is about. It's about being different and it was basically born as a reaction to this, like, yeah, it was like almost going opposite to what England was good in, which was like this beautifully decorated ornamental type of products. And uh, they went into like super simple geometric shapes, very utilitarian, but beautiful at the same time. And um, it worked. So German factories then basically won this game because it was more desirable and more viable to produce these products because you didn't need to have as much handwork involved as like with the Bauhaus products as you did with the arts and crafts one. And maybe I'm simplifying this a, a little bit, but it also seemed to have somewhat started with uh, a bit of ethnographic or a bit of design research that there was a, a particular individual and in whose name escapes me, perhaps you'll recall, uh, that was sent from Germany to England to understand yeah. the context, right, to inform this. What was the story there? Uh, this guy's name is Hermann. I don't remember the surname anymore. I think even in the talk, I just went with Hermann because his surname is super complicated, German surname. But yeah, they basically sent a cultural spy to England to try to understand what makes the English factory successful. So they were like, hey, Hermann, here's a ticket. Just go there. Just go into factories. Try to become friends with these designers and try to understand what makes them good. And Herman like stayed there for for some time, came back and said, guys, it doesn't make sense to compete with them. Like they are super great in creating this product that they're creating. But there's something interesting I found. So there's this new move movement 
I'm forgetting all the whole story right now, but like he found a new movement and basically this new movement became basically the idea for the Bauhaus and I forgot the name, but basically what happened in England because of this super success of these big factories who created these beautifully decorated products, new wave of design aesthetics was born and this was designers working within workshops so they went and work in within workshops with these masters of crafts and that's basically it was a reaction to this like inhumane also like uh, conditions in the british factories and at their just like economies of scale and um, industrialism and so on and the whole idea was hey let's do something more craftsy and let's create products with soul and let's create products that are more utilitarian and um, yeah so that kind of started to form in England like on the edges and then Hermann our spy was like oh that's interesting let's actually industrialize this idea <laughs> so even though this was born as a just a way to actually fight industrialism and capitalism it ended up being even more industrialistic and capitalistic idea that actually won and helped Germany win over UK. And, and to this day, still do, still hold the, the dominant manufacturing position. <laughs> this is very strategic, right? This is a beautiful marriage of business and design. And one of the things that you've spoken about before is that if designers are going to have greater impact in their organizations and do what we're framing here as good design, and that being design that is good, but design that is also good for business, they need to be a bit more strategic about that. You've pointed out in a recent, fairly recent Medium article, which is called How to Become a More Strategically Minded Designer, that being strategic and having an understanding of strategy aren't necessarily one and the same thing. So what is the difference? What's sort of the difference there that you're articulating in that article? Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is, first of all, you need to understand the word strategy. And it's one of the most misused words in business. And when somebody says strategy, they mean different things. So first of all, if you want to be more strategically minded designer, you need to understand what you want what you think this word means versus what others in your organization think when they say strategy. Is it the same thing or not? So for example, when somebody says strategy, they sometimes, uh, they mostly say like, oh, I need a plan. Because strategy is like, oh, let's do big thinking, like big picture thinking. But actually that's not what strategy actually is within business. So within business, strategy is a path to differentiation. So we're trying to take different set of actions to get to a defendable and valuable position in a market. That's what strategy is in a business. So when you say, hey, I want to be more strategic, you need to first be clear with yourself. Am I just saying, hey, I want to be more mindful of the big picture, which means I basically just need to understand how my work fits into the work of this company. If that's the case, that's easy to solve. There are two tools to use here. There. One is like uh, ecosystem map. So this basically means I just try to visualize my company's business model by using three different things. I want to draw on a piece of paper all the actors and then I want to draw all the flows and basically the, we have three different flows on there. So flow of money, flow of data and flow of goods. If I draw this, I can understand my company's business model. 
and then I can also understand better which how are my decisions helping this business model or are my decisions even hindering this business model. I'll come back to this point, just first talk about the second tool. So the second tool you can use to do the big picture thinking is like profit tree. And profit tree is like, just imagine a tree on top, we have fewer leaves than at the bottom. Uh, so it's like a Christmas tree. So on top there is a profit and then below that we have revenue and we have costs. And then even below that, we can break it down even further. So your job in, in any project is to basically understand, am I now trying to increase revenue or decrease costs? Because that's ultimately what every project within the company does. And once you understand this, you can go even further. Like if you're increasing revenue, okay, am I improving retention? Am I increasing the lifetime value of the customers or whatever it is? Or if, it, if you're decreasing costs, am I decreasing fixed costs, variable costs? Like, you can just go deeper and deeper to really try to understand how your work fits into the big picture because once you know that, you can use different language to explain your work. You're not going longer just gonna talk about, I don't know, wireframes or aesthetics or the branding, but you can also talk about the business metrics and you can also use words like strategy and so on. Yeah, so these are the two tools basically about how you can be more big picture thinker, <laughs> which is what usually people think uh, being strategically minded designer is. But there's also another definition of strategy, which is, as I said before, strategy is a way for a company to find a valuable and a different position in the market. So being differentiated, being different. And uh, if that's what you mean, then actually you're actions as a designer need to help your company differentiate. An example of that would be trying to find the branding, uh, the brand image and the brand position that puts your company into a different position from others. That's one example. Another example is aligning your decision with uh, actually your company's business strategy. An example I have there is like, if you are non-strategically minded designer, and let's say you work for an airline, for a low cost airline. In Europe, we have a few of those. So if you're a designer working for a Ryanair and you go out and you do research and you talk to your passengers, what is the most likely thing that they'll tell you? The planes are cramped. You know, I need more legroom. And uh, you, you, you're gonna hear this over and over again. And you're gonna go back to your you know, desk and you're gonna be like, hey, everybody's telling us to give them more legroom. And you go and you propose this to your non-designer friends and they would just laugh you out of the room. And the reason why this is the case is because Ryanair is low cost airline and the fact that it has small leg room means that they can fit more rows onto a plane, many more rows than a traditional airline can. And this means they can have more passengers and this means they can have lower prices. And why do people fly with low cost airlines? Because they're willing to make sacrifice for leg room for lower price. So essentially by us just focusing on a design perspective in this example, by actually just focusing on what users are telling us, what customers are telling us, we're actually working against the strategy and even against the customers themselves. Is it unfair to say that in that example that the business strategy is more important than the customer? I think it's a balance. You know, strategy ideally fits with what the users and customers want. But there needs to be a nice, beautiful balance. It's like a depth of understanding what their hierarchy of wants are, right? Because you're talking about trade-off decisions here. Mm. People are going to say, I want to be more comfortable 
and go, okay, well, we can make it more comfortable, but the fear is going to be twice as much. How comfortable do you want to be now? Yeah. So one of the things you should start doing in the user research is exactly this. It's like not just asking people what they want, but actually presenting them with trade-offs. That's what strategy is. Strategy is actually you understanding what trade-offs you as a company need to make because those are trade-offs that customers are willing to make. Um, so what I would frequently do on the on in the user research is exactly those things. Is I would present users with two scenarios. Both of them would need to be attractive and see actually what do they want more. So for example, if you work for a car company and you're trying to think of a new strategy, you might be playing with two strategies. One is like performance strategy, let's call it, and one is space strategy. So one performance strategy is like, we want to create the best engine, you know, the best driving experience for a driver. And another one is like, we want to create the best driving experience for everyone else. So not a driver. Uh, so this is a space strategy, let's call it. So. Basically, you go to your users, your customers, and you give them two, two, these two options. You tell them, hey, would you rather have a car that actually is pretty slow? It's the engine, it's not gonna accelerate fast, but you're gonna have all these awesome features inside. So people can sit in, I don't know, couches, you know, like imagine IKEA creating a car. In like, it's basically you become a furniture company, not a car company anymore so that's a strategy versus you having a car which is how cars are built today which is like the car is built around the engine so one car is built around the engine another car is built around the space for passengers so yeah you, you can present these two both so both of these scenarios you can we can we should present in a tone and in a way that it's desirable so presenting advantages and disadvantages to both and then um, people can make a trade-off which, where would you rather be, here or there? You know, like which of these two cars would you have? And that's an example of forcing users to make this trade of decisions so you can make a strategic trade of decision. And through that, I imagine that you're actually understanding how they're critically thinking about the trade-off. You know, why do they say they prefer one over the other? You're actually forcing them into a much more intellectually interesting and potentially more business useful way of articulating what it is that they're after. Yeah, and you get a hierarchy of needs in a way as well. These kind of decisions, these trade-off decisions around at the business strategy level, doesn't strike me that there are too many designers that are regularly participating in those decisions. What's it going to take to get more designers at that particular type of decision-making activity? How do we get there? And business confidence seems to be one step, but if you think about the broader arc, you know, potentially zooming out, thinking globally here, what things do you believe need to happen for in, say, 15 years for us to have more designers at those types of tables? First of all, we have to realize that even among all of those people with MBAs, not all of them make strategic decisions. So they are made by strategy is a thing you don't want to change too often, even as a company. Now I'm talking about business strategy. So this strategy, which involves making trade-off decisions. Those are usually taken at the top of the company. And ideally, companies in the future, every company in the future has chief designer officer. It becomes as ubiquitous as having a chief technology officer. You know, like you just have it because it's normal to have one. And those the chief designer officers would ideally be fluent in those things because they are the only ones in the room who can do quick visual prototypes for everyone else in the boardroom to quickly 
talk about an idea, quickly talk about strategy and to agree on something concrete. Because that's a thing that many designers, we overlook this as a community. It's like, this is our super power and the skill that not many other people in business have. If you go into a boardroom, there's a lot of people who know how to read spreadsheets and how to read numbers, but they have almost zero like visual skills. And they talk and talk and talk and they have this illusion of agreement because they agree about the words. And then next time somebody comes with a prototype and it's like, oh, no, no, that's not what I said. But the other person is like, no, that's exactly what you said. And so once they get a prototype, they start to disagree. So that's our superpower in those situations is to be by facilitating those conversations, by being visual, we can help make those decisions and inject our ideas, which is like, oh, we're thinking about this and this strategy. And then you as a designer can say, hey, actually, I can test this. Because no one else in the room will have an idea to test strategy because it's like, what are you talking about? You can't just test strategy. We need to invest hundreds and millions to, to test this, to actually uh, see if people want this. It's like, no, I think I can, I can actually do it for 20K <laughs> and just give me like, I don't know, a month and I'll at least have some pre preliminary results that we can uh, use. So that's on the top, top level, but uh, most of the designers won't be taking these decisions, but they might be taking product strategy decisions. And a product strategy decision, for example, is, um, is this open or closed system? And there, again, you can do this research. So you can go and talk to users and you can see which makes more sense. You can also have two different versions of the flow and test those in a strategic manner as a trade-off. So I think fundamentally, we as a community should be aware of the difference, what strategy means in different uh, setups. So business strategy versus strategy as thinking big and just knowing which tools to use when. Do you get the feeling that it's easier for business people to become designers or for designers to become business people? I don't know because so I started business. I had zero experience with design before I went into design agency. And um, honestly, I was lost for the first year. I had zero idea what's happening. Like these people were thinking so fast, so differently from me that I was literally lost. So my experience was not a smooth one, you know, of transitioning from being a what you call deductive thinker to being more like abductive thinker because what you're being taught in a business school is like we have a problem let's eliminate all the ideas that obviously won't work and let's focus on one to two most promising ones and let's test those and as a designer you're like no i want to stay in this in between zone and i want to explore things that i know don't work just so that i get inspired so that i maybe find something that works in the end and that's super uncomfortable for business people so I think it's just a, such a different way of thinking that neither of these two is easy. But I, I don't think either side needs to actually make the switch. It's more about just being aware of the powers of each of these sides. So I think it's more about building our own bridges than about combining these two things. Perhaps talking about combining some things or building some bridges between two different things. You've spoken before about how designers sometimes have this worry that by becoming more quantitative or more analytical, using more financial data in their decision making, that in some way it might dehumanize the people that our work is for. And you've suggested, though, that 
by combining our qualitative data that we can draw on from our organisations from different areas of them with the more subjective qualitative data that we're more accustomed perhaps to getting by spending time with users, with the people that we're creating things for, that this can actually lead to more empathy rather than less empathy. How is that so? If you have more data, you can look at the problem from different perspectives. And I think the way what quality the research is good at is answering why something is happening, but doesn't tell us how much of this is happening and maybe where it's happening and so on. And if you use quant, quant is very, very good at telling you how much of what is happening. Is it relevant enough to care about this thing? So I think this is then a really powerful combination of why and how much of what is happening. Then you have to both. Because sometimes, like if you look just... A lot of people who use and love dashboards and numbers, they know what's happening, but they don't understand why and vice versa. People know why something is happening, but don't know how much of that is happening if it's relevant. And that's the eternal trouble with like design research. You go and you do 12 user interviews and then you come and present this to business people. And they're like, yeah, but that's just 12 people, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so you need to, I mean, ideally then you, you can kind of show the connection and that's the whole grail of research. Yeah, I mean, you're touching on here something that we're laughing about, right? But this is the this is because it is true. There's something deeply true about this. There's people that generalizing, of course, designers on one hand, where there's a bit of fear of numbers, and then you've got business people on the on, on the other one, which uh, there's a, there's safety in numbers. They, regardless of whether the numbers themselves are actually are valid or right, there's a sort of implicit trust in having a large data set to quantify something. Is there some magic way of bringing these two worlds together? Like what have you seen that actually works? Like how can you pry open the door just wide enough to these various camps to show them that there might be, you know, a more interesting room on the other side if they could just have a little look through and step into it? Yeah, that's that's a culture thing, you know? Like you within the company... There's usually a way of taking decisions and that way of taking decisions usually comes from the way founder has done them or the top management is doing them. And that's the hardest thing to change. You know, culture eats strategy for breakfast is a famous saying in business. So it's more about a culture than about like a, a process because yeah, the, the recipe is pretty simple. Like you just need people who think differently working alongside each other and complementing insights and way of thinking. So it's, nothing um yeah it's not rocket science but it's just hard to do because as you said business people feel safe in numbers and if you can show hey we're attacking this market because it's so big and even if even if you fail like because you use numbers you feel safe and you probably won't lose your job i mean you might but that's another story and with designers we're like no, but I did 12 interviews. This makes sense. I'm super happy with taking this decision. And we feel safe in that qualitative uh, research, you know? It's about combining these two cultures. And basically, it's just about changing the way we take decisions. And that's the hardest thing to do. So if anyone's listening and has this chance, it's more about yeah opening up to different data sources so for example like after every dmba intake we do extensive research so we do interviews we do survey uh, we talk to people we gather and we also gather behavioral data so how do people behave during the intake 
and then we combine qualitative and quantitative research to see what's going on. So we try to have different perspectives to then synthesize and make a decision what to change and what not to change. We won't have time to get into this in full, but something that you're quite a proponent of is prototyping with numbers. Oof, I love prototyping with numbers. <laughs> Maybe we need to do another episode at some stage. It's a really interesting area for people to look at, and I will put a link to in the show notes to a resource that Alan has put out there through DMBA's website that talks to this specifically. Now, as part of this, though, you've talked about the idea of or the importance of prototyping with what you've called wrong numbers. So if we're talking about getting at truth here or getting a more objective view of what truth may be by using different types of data to, to achieve that, what are uh, wrong numbers and what essentially is their purpose? Are you referring to the fastest way to get to right numbers is using the wrong numbers? Is that the thing? Or? I believe so. <laughs> yeah. So first of all, what is prototyping with numbers? So the same way that uh, we as design community use wireframes, uh, I don't know, black and white logos, um, service uh, journey maps and so on. These are prototypes. The same way you can use numbers to prototype things. So when I worked as a business designer, my language of design was numbers. So I would be like, okay, so we want to sell. So for this thing to make sense to our client, which is a 10 billion revenue, 10 billion euros per year company, uh, this product needs to make at least billion. Okay. So for this to make at least billion in revenue, we need to sell this and this many products per year. Okay. For us to sell this and this many products per year, what kind of business model do we need? Do we need to go through third party vendors? Do we need to sell ourselves? Blah, blah, blah. So you can see how you, by using numbers, I am not just using numbers, but I'm taking decisions. I'm prototyping the business model. I'm prototyping the service. I'm prototyping the pricing. So that's what prototyping with numbers is. And uh, yeah, the fastest way to get to the correct numbers is to use the wrong ones. Because once you have these wrong numbers, those are basically, you're not saying, hey, this is a prototype and this is the truth. No, it's a prototype. And you know, there are assumptions baked into it. And now you go out and you test those numbers. And that's why the, bad, the fastest way to get to the right numbers is to use wrong numbers. And if you work with clients, if you use the wrong number, they also give you the correct number. So that's another like added benefit of using numbers is like, if you have a spreadsheet and you use certain like uh, assumptions of your own, if they see an assumption that they have an exact data for, they will be like, no, 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 no. Uh, you got this wrong. So this cell, you, look, you see C12 cell? No, that's wrong. I have the correct data for you. And then you can plug it into your model and you have a better uh, prototype. I wish we had more time to go into that, but we do not. <laughs> so I must bring things down to a close. Alan, I have one final question for you today. And it's tied back into this objective, this outcome that you're seeking for designers, which is to become business confident as a result of going through DMBA. Now, you obviously give them the content and an environment from which they can do that. And I know that you keep a close eye or a close, there's a close community that forms after people have gone through the program for them to stay in contact and for you to understand where they're getting to in their careers. For the ones that go through the program and that go on to have the most impact in their careers, the most business level impact in their careers, what is it that they have seen or that they are doing different than perhaps the ones that have less impact? What are those ones doing? 
they apply things immediately. That's the difference. I mean, it's easy, but it's just like you learn something and you try it right away and you get on this treadmill of like, I'm not just learning this. I'm not just taking a course just to consume some data, but I actually gonna try to use it. And those that start using it, they see the value very quickly. So it's just about taking that leap and finding the right project to use it in your work. Wonderful. Alan, I've really enjoyed getting a bit deeper into your perspectives on design, obviously hearing a bit about DMBA as well today. Thank you for so generously sharing your stories and insights with me. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you. Lovely being here. It's been, uh, been my pleasure. Alan, if people want to connect with you, they want to keep up to date with what you're doing, what uh, DMBA is up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, you can uh, head over to D.MBA and maybe if you are interested in learning more about business as a designer, I think the easiest first step is to go over to yeah, D.MBA slash mini minus MBA. So that's where they can sign up for like a short seven day email course. But if they want to just get in touch with me or stay in touch with me, they can also, I think the social media I'm most active on is LinkedIn. So you can just look up my name, find me there, but it's linkedin.com slash A-L-E-N-F-A, I think. It's my URL, something like that. <laughs> if not, just type in my name and you'll find me. Wonderful. Thanks, Alan. And to everyone that's been with us, it's been great having you here as well. Everything we've covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Alan, including his LinkedIn profile. I'll be sure to put that there. And all the things that we've spoken about will be fully chaptered. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX research, product management and design, don't forget to leave a review on the podcast. Subscribe so it turns up every two weeks and tell someone else about the show if you feel that would get value from these conversations at depth if you want to reach out to me you can find me on linkedin just search for brendan jarvis there's also a link to my profile at the bottom of the show notes or head on over to my website which is thespaceinbetween.co.nz that's thespaceinbetween.co.nz and until next time keep being brave hey!